Hi everyone, my name's Larry and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Good to be here. I do feel at home already. I've met a lot of wonderful people. It's good being here. I want to tell you before I start, by the grace of a loving God and a good sponsor and people in AA, my sobriety date November the 7th, 1978. Thank you. And I love your banner. Sobriety, the great life, and that's exactly what's happened to me since I've come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I've had a great life, and I never thought that was possible. I can remember going to my first conference, and I was about three months sober, and a guy got up to talk. Me and my wife was there, and I was still bumping into walls and everything else. We sat down, and a guy named Johnny H. got up to talk, and he had on a nice suit and a tie, and I thought, well, look at this slick dude. Now, what in the world can a guy like that say to me? And he began to talk, and my wife liked to broke my ribs every time he'd say something. She'd nudge me. And I'm so grateful that Johnny shared his experience, strength, and hope with me at that conference because that was a beginning for me because I found out there was people like me all over the world, and it took away my uniqueness, and that's a pretty good feeling. I want to thank the committee for having me here. When uh, Dick called me and asked me to come, I jumped at the chance because my sponsor who is Jack S. from Louisville, Kentucky, has been here, and he's told me a lot of wonderful things about the people here, and I really, this is our first time in Nebraska, and me and my wife are excited to be here, and we've met some old friends, and we've already made some new friends, so we're really excited. Before I get started, I'd like to introduce you to my wife. I always like to do that, because after I get through talking, a lot of the Alanons want to come up and see how she survived. <laughs> But me and Barbara's been together 35 years, and we've had a good life since we've been in AA and Al-Anon. Barbara, you want to stand up? I'm grateful that she wanted to come with me because there was a time in our life she didn't want to go to the next room with me. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, a guy told a joke, and it kind of reminded me of me and Barbara, which is always one step in each other, trying to outwit each other, and it was a joke about a judge. Now, I've never been a judge, but I've been in front of a lot of them, and I like to tell jokes on them whenever I get the opportunity. And it seemed like this judge was an alcoholic, and he was kind of henpecked, and he wanted to get out of the house and uh, get down to his favorite beer joint, so he told his wife, he said, Honey, I'll be back after a while. I'm going down to the courthouse and work on some papers. And she said, well, I'll see you later. And he got out of the house and headed for his favorite beer tavern. And during the course of the night, he got drunk and he got sick. And he threw up all over the front of his shirt. And going home that night, he thought, man, what am I going to tell my wife? So he tiptoed in the house, took that shirt off, and threw it down the laundry hamper. And the next morning, he got ready to go to work, and his wife was standing at the door with his briefcase. And he started out, and she said, say, what happened to you last night? He said, well, what do you mean, honey? And she said, well, I was downstairs doing the laundry before you got up, and your shirt's got vomit all over the front of it. Well, being a good alcoholic, he was a quick thinker, and he said, oh, honey, I meant to tell you about that. He said, last night when I was down at the courthouse working on them papers, they brought a drunk in. And he said, I was trying to help him with that drunk, and he got sick, and he threw up all over the front of my shirt. He said, but don't you worry about it. When he comes in front of that bench this morning, I'm going to give him 30 days. And his wife never batted an eye. She said, you ought to give him 90 days. He said, 90 days? She said, yeah, he done something in your pants, too. <laughs> that was me and Barbara. 
I could tell them, but she was always one step ahead of me. You know, we've had an exciting time in sobriety. I want to thank whoever put the fruit basket in the room. I really enjoyed that, just all the hospitality. But now I'm going to get down to what I was invited to do. I told my sponsor he was looking at this program, and he said, I see you're the early bird speaker. And I said, yeah, I get to go first. He said, the sick ones always do. <laughs> so I don't know what y'all in store for, but I told him one time I was going to quit talking locally. I'd been talking a lot, and I said, I'm going to quit talking. He said, really? He said, how come? I said, everybody's heard me. He said, what are you going to do? They get tired of seeing you. <laughs> I thought, well, you know, I think I'll just keep talking. So I've only got one story, and that's what I'm going to do because that's what was done for me when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. It's the people that told their story helped me. Because when I got here, I thought I was terribly unique, and nobody had done the things that I had done. And I remember going to a meeting, and a guy got up and talked, and he talked about talking to vacuum cleaners. And I thought that old guy was funnier than heck. And I went to my second AA meeting, and a wine old got up to talk. And he talked about drinking wine and crapping in his pants. And I said, I'm in the right place. You know, I could identify, and I hope maybe tonight somebody can identify with part of my story and my recovery. I want to tell you that I was born and raised in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, from a large family. We lived down in a section of Louisville called Portland. Rough place to grow up. I don't know if it was the ghettos, but it was pretty close to it. There was a beer joint on every corner, and there was large Catholic families down there. Most of the families was big. Now, we wasn't Catholics, but I believe my daddy took lessons from them because <laughs> there wound up being 13 kids in my family. And you talking about a nightmare. There was nine boys in that family, and I want to tell you there was four of us in Alcoholics Anonymous at one time, so that should tell you something about that behavior. But we was the original Adams family long before they come on television. <laughs> and I thought for a long time our sole purpose in life was to entertain the neighborhood. And we did a good job of it. There was always something going on at my house. There was always a police car there. There was always somebody doing something. I know the day that my father was an alcoholic. Uh, my dad made a good living for all of us. He was a painter, and he would work hard all week long, and on Friday night, he would stop up to the corner, and when he stopped up to the corner, our life changed, because when he come home, he would be all liquored up, and he would be belligerent, and him and my mom would start hollering and screaming at each other, and my daddy would get butcher knives out, and he would run my mother through the house, and he would stab the walls, and I was a small kid back then, and I used to run and hide under beds and in closets to get away from my father. I loved him, and I hated him. I couldn't understand that. But I knew one thing, I'd never be like him. I remember saying that, I'll never be like my dad. I also had an older brother that had DTs when I was growing up. And my mom didn't know what to do with him, and she called the police to our house. And the only way they could get my brother out of that house was one of these police officers took the bullets out of his gun. And they gave my brother this empty revolver so he could shoot at these imaginary things that was after him. And they got him out into the police car and they took him to University Hospital in Louisville, Kentucky, and put him in a straitjacket. And I remember thinking, my God, how can anybody drink like that? Little did I know that the same disease that my father and that brother had that I was going to have also. So, you know, watching it don't do nothing for you. Because by 12 years old, I began to experiment with alcohol. I look back today, and had I never took a drink of alcohol, I want you to know I still would have been a minister to society because I found out real early in my life that if you couldn't get 
a lot of attention with good behavior, man, you can get all you want with bad behavior. I don't have to tell you all in this room. You can get all you want, and I got all I want, because in school I was the class clown. Usually if the teacher was writing an assignment up on the blackboard, I'd pick up an eraser or a piece of chalk when all my classmates was looking, and I'd bust her upside the head, and all my classmates would laugh, and I got a lot of attention in school. I remember I was talking to a guy at a meeting once, and my mother was there, and we was talking about school, and my mom was kind of staring at me real hard. And I stopped and I said, Mom, I did go to school. And she said, Larry, I want you to know that I went to school more for you than you did. <laughs> and that was true, because I was always in trouble. Had all these older brothers, and you know, I can remember going to a boys' club. I would go up to this boys' club and play basketball. And to go up this boys' club, I had to go up Portland. It was a section of Louisville, like I said, there was a bar on every corner. And I would head up to the boys' club, and when I got to 29th in Portland, there was a beer joint on that corner that was the most magnificent place I'd ever seen. And if I tiptoed and got up, they had a round window in the front of it, and I could look in that window, and I had about four or five brothers in that joint. And it was a nice place. The band played behind chicken wire, and the tables was bolted to the floor. <laughs> and my brothers was in there fighting, and I thought, man, I can't wait till I can get in there. Now, that's not much of an ambition to have when you're a young man. And it wasn't long. Like I said, at 12 years old, I used to hang on a corner. There was a library. And we played football. And we wrestled. And we done all the things that young boys do up on them corners. And I was up there one night, and they said, Larry, we're going to pool our money together and get something to drink tonight. Do you want to go with us? Now, at 12 years old, I hadn't had no experiment with alcohol. But I'll tell you what I wanted. I wanted to be part of that crowd on that corner. And I would have went anywhere and done anything to be part of that craft. And I went with them that night, and that was my first drunk at 12 years old. And I got drunk, and I got sick, and I got in trouble with the police at 12 years old. And I want to tell you, when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 38 years old. And I was still getting drunk, getting sick, and getting in trouble with the police. Not a whole lot changed. But I liked what alcohol done for me. I was a skinny little shy kid. People know me today laugh when I say that. I, I was, I was real shy, and alcohol did something for me that I chased for the next 25 years. Uh, finally got into high school, just barely passing, barely getting by, and I got old enough to quit school, and I decided I was going to leave school. I was smarter than the teachers, and I spent most of my time in the principal's office. And I had an older brother, and he was a jockey, and he was a rich, famous jockey at one time in his life, and he rode horses all over the world and he made a lot of money and he used to come home for visits when I was growing up and he would bring jockeys home with him and he would take them up to them nice places I told you about where the band plays behind chicken wire. People would flock around him and he'd throw them $20 bills out like he had just printed them and people would pat him on the back and told him what a wonderful guy he was and I thought that's it. That's what I'm going to do. Now at 16 years old I weigh less than 100 pounds. And I thought, I'm going away, get me a job on the racetrack, and become a rich, famous jockey. Now, my daddy had a rule at our house anyhow. It was called 16 and out. When you got 16, it was time to get out. And I thought that was awful unfair until I looked back. And if I had 13 kids, I might have that rule too. You know, we like to kill them. But I did. I left home at 16 years old, and I went to Boston, Massachusetts to seek my fame and fortune. Now, if you've never heard about me, don't become too alarmed. 
Because when I got up into Boston on the racetrack, the first thing I did was fall in with the people that drank and drugged. And that's what I began to do. I began to run the country and drink and just do what I wanted to. I was 16 years old. I had no kind of supervision. I looked up one day at my brother Norman. You'll hear a lot about Norman in my story. He was, uh, he showed up up in Boston. I thought, how about that? My brother come a thousand miles to see me. And I found out later he was hiding from the FBI. <laughs> he got in a little trouble in Louisville and he decided to come up to Boston and spend some time with me. And when he got up there, we really got to partying hard. But he didn't last long. The FBI found out where he was and they come up into Boston and they arrested him. And I got real homesick after he got brought back to Louisville. I'd been gone for quite a while and hadn't wrote a letter, hadn't called my mom and dad. And I thought, I think I'll go home. And I did, and I remember coming home and my dad come in from work that night. And I thought, boy, I'll bet dad will be glad to see me. And he walked in, he looked over and I was sitting in a chair and he said, Christ's sake, are you back again? You know, I didn't like him before and that was another mark against him. But he told me something that day. He said, Larry, if you think you're going to do like your brothers and you're going to hang in that bed all day long and then hang on them street corners at nighttime, you can't stay here. Well, I don't have to tell y'all it wasn't long till he asked me to leave because that's what I began to do. I began to hang on them street corners and do what my older brothers was doing. And there's one advantage of being from a large family. It takes a long time to use them up. And I remember going to my brother, brother Ralph's house after Dad asked me to leave, and I knocked on his door, and I said, Ralph, Dad run me off. Can I stay all night? And he said, well, yeah, come on in. I want you to know it took him a year to get rid of me. I was like bubble gum. When I got in, I stuck. <laughs> Began to have a lot of problems at this time in my life. I'm, I'm always getting locked up. It seemed like every weekend for drunk, disorderly conduct. I began to hang in them beer joints where my brothers was. I began to do the things that they was doing, fighting and carrying on. Now, you can look at me and tell I'm not big enough to be a fighter. But when you got about five brothers in that joint, man, you can really get loud. And my brother Norman would rather fight than eat. And I kept him in training for several years. <laughs> I would start him and he would finish him. I remember we was in this bear joint one night and I started a big ruckus and he had to finish it. And he'd come over to the table. He was all banged up and he sat down and he said, Larry, I hate to tell you this, but when you drink, you got an alligator mouth and a hummingbird ass. <laughs> Boy, that was me. You know, I could start him. I just couldn't finish him. But I'm going to jail on a regular basis and not much good's happening in my life. But Barbara was raised about a block from me. I've knew my wife since she was probably five years old. But all of a sudden she grew up and she had what I wanted and I was willing to go to any lengths to get it. And me and her began to slip around. Now I say slip around because Barbara was a Christian girl. She went to a religious school. They taught her religion and the Bible, and they taught her to stay away from people like me. But she flunked that course, evidently. <laughs> and me and her would slip around, and we had to slip around because her daddy hated my guts. He'd tell her, you stay away from that Adams boy, he's trouble. And I used to think, I wonder why her daddy don't like me. You know, and I want to tell you what I'd do to him. I'd be out all night, Friday night, drinking and cruising the streets of Louisville, and I'd be coming down the block where we lived on on Saturday morning, I'd have a bottle of beer in my hand, I'd be so drunk I couldn't walk, and he'd be out cutting grass or trimming the bushes, and I'd throw that bottle of beer at him and call him an SB and couldn't understand why he didn't want his daughter to go out with me. Thought he was picking on me. But me and Barbara, we finally slipped off, we got married, and we was going to live happily ever after. You know, and man, we started having children. 
I thought I was going to have 13 like my daddy when I started off. We began to have kids, and we had two right away, and Barbara was pregnant with our third child, and our life was a shambles because of my alcoholism, because I'm progressing a whole lot. I'm running the streets of Louisville, and I'm running with the wildest crowd I could find. And we would ride the streets on Friday and Saturday nights, and if you left something out in your yard and we wanted it, we took it because we thought the world was a mark. And I don't have to tell you that when you live like that, sooner or later you got to pay for it. And it wasn't long till I was standing in one of them judges I told you a joke about, and I was standing up there and he sentenced me to 10 years in the Kentucky State Penitentiary. And my wife was in that courtroom and she was pregnant with our third child and she began to cry. And my mother and daddy was in that courtroom and they began to cry. And I remember looking back and I thought, what the hell are you all crying about? I'm going to the penitentiary. <laughs> you know, I tell you that because at 23 years old, I had lost the ability to care about another human being. And I went up to the penitentiary and guess what? All my friends was there. They said, hey, Larry, what took you so long? And I thought, I thought, I wonder how they knew I was coming. You know, it was a cinch I was coming. I tell you about being in there for two reasons. When I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, if you'd have asked me what was the worst thing that ever happened to me, I'd have said going to prison. But I want to tell you tonight, it's not. The worst thing that happened to me was a prisoner that alcohol was to make out of me. Far worse than any jail or penitentiary I've ever set foot in. I also tell you about being there because it was my first introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm up there one night and he didn't have a whole lot to do in the penitentiary. He had a big old loop and we called it walking the loop. And I'm walking the loop one night and a buddy of mine come up and he said, Larry, you want to go to a meeting tonight? I said, what kind of meeting? He said, an AA meeting. And I looked at him like he had two heads. I said, what in the world would I want to go to an AA meeting for in a penitentiary? But he said something that motivated me. He said, might look good to the parole board. I said, where's the meeting at? <laughs> I'd have done anything. And I want you to know for the next 18 months, <laughs> I attended meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I want you to know tonight that you can come into these rooms till your rear end falls off. And if you don't hear something and absorb it, it won't do you a bit of good. And that's exactly what happened to me. I'd go to them meetings on Wednesday night and they'd bring the speaker in and I thought he'd come in there to entertain me. And the meeting would get over with and we'd start back to the dormitory and I'd look at my buddy and I'd say, man, that guy's had a rough life, ain't he? Now he went out the front gate and went home to his wife and kids and I went back and got locked up and I felt sorry for him. <laughs> my sponsor told me I shouldn't have had no trouble with the word insanity when I got there. But after 18 months, I made parole. Barbara had our third child. She went on aid for dependent children. And she kept that family together. And she rode a bus every Sunday up at that penitentiary to see me. And I would sit in that visiting room and I'd tell her all them promises that we make, oh baby, you ain't for me. And when I get out, our life's gonna be different. And I got out of there, Barbara had that third child and I held that baby for the first time behind bars. And I got out and things was different for about two weeks. We had to go on one of them extended honeymoons you got to go on when you've been going. You got to get caught up, and I want to tell you, it don't take long to get caught up. And I got bored, and I thought, I wonder what my buddies are doing up at the corner. And I walked up to the corner, and they said, hey, Larry, we're glad you're back. Have a beer. And I picked that bottle of beer up, and it was like I never left. They talk about the progression of alcohol, alcoholism. Well, I'm going to tell you, man, really progressed. We tried a geographical cure about this time in our life. I took Barbara to the racetrack, she went $500.
and, and she hid it. She didn't believe in banks. She hid that money, and I took her back to the racetrack. She went another $500. And I said, what are you going to do with all that money? She said, I'm going to buy a house, and I'm going to move you out of Portland. It's the people you run with that cause you to be like you are. And Barbara used to hide that money, and I'd like to tell you, when she'd go somewhere, I'd tear that house up looking for that money. And I never did find that money. And it wasn't until we was in a fellowship, and I went to an Al-Anon meeting to hear my wife give a lead, and she told where she used to hide that money. And I like to pass it on to my fellow alcoholics in case you go back out there. She used to hide it in flower pots. So if you're looking, turn them flower pots upside down. I told that one night at the meeting, some Alan and I said, Larry, you shouldn't tell where our hiding places is. I said, well, I'm going to assure you she don't hide it there no more. So give it a try if you have to go back out there, but you don't have to. You can stay here with a great life. You don't have to go back out. But we did. We bought a house, and we moved out into Shively, and I remember after we got out there, Barbara looked at me one night, and she said, Larry, I know what's wrong with you. Barbara always knew what was wrong with me. And I said, what's that? She said, nobody's ever taught you how to drink. I said, really? She said, I'm going to take you out tonight and learn you how to be a social drinker. And if, if she was buying, I was going. And she got me in the car, and she took me out on a place called Bardstown Road in Louisville, Kentucky, to a place called the Toy Tiger. Real nice place. And I remember walking in that door, and that band was a-playing. I got snapping my fingers, and I thought, boy, we're going to have a good time in here tonight. And we sat down, and she ordered me a vodka and orange juice. And they set it down, I snatched it up, went to chug a lug it down, and she reached over and touched my hand. She said, no, 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 no. She said, you don't drink like that. She said, you sit here, and you sip on that, and you listen to the music. And she said, something I'll never forget. She said, two of them are to do you while we're here. I kind of doubted that, but I thought, I'll humor this old gal. And I remember sitting in that toy tiger, and I was sipping on that vodka and orange juice, and I'd look across the table, and she'd be smiling. And I thought under my breath, damn you, I hate you. You don't want me to have no fun. And I stood it as long as I could, and I said, look, if this is social drinking, you can have it. And I began to snap my fingers for that waitress, and she began to bring them drinks like I wanted them. And when we left that night, she helped me out to the car, and she drove home, and she never took me back, so I guess I flunked social drinking. <laughs> the only social drinking I was going to do after that, when somebody said he was going to have a drink, I'd say socialize. You know, that was me. <laughs> but she was trying to help me. A lot of people were trying to help me, and our life was like shambles. You know, my children were starting to grow up, had two daughters and a son. They didn't have nobody over to the house because... They didn't know what their father would do when he'd come home because I would go in and embarrass them. My son was a football player in high school, and he would beg me to come to football games, and I'd promise him I would, and I went to every game my son played in. But while my son was down on the field playing football, his drunken father was up in the stands fighting and carrying on. What an embarrassment. My two daughters would leave the house when i come. You know... I was never going to be like my daddy, but now I was stopping in them beer joints and staying for four, five, six hours. And you know what I began to do? I began to come home and do the very things that my father did. And my children began to hide under beds. I was not going to be like him, and I was just exactly. But I couldn't stop because alcohol had me by the throat and was taking me under. In 1974, I had got me a maintenance paint job. If you've heard about drunken painters, that's what I was. I had got a maintenance paint job, and I was working on this job, and I fell. And I had to be rushed to the hospital. 
and I had to have back surgery, the first of several back surgeries I've had. And I had to lay around home and recuperate, and I was drawing workman's comp. My buddies would come by and bring a check, and, I mean a bottle, and, you know, we'd sit there and drink, and I'd go to the doctor, and he'd say, Larry, how you doing? I'd say, well, I'm doing pretty good, but I get awful nervous around the house. He said, that's no problem. I'll give you some nerve pills. And he did give me a big old bottle of Valiums, but he put the worst thing he put on there for an alcoholic. He put, take as needed. <laughs> and I want you to know from 1974 to 1978 when I got to this fellowship, alcohol and drugs completely consumed me. And I also want you to know that I go to one 12-step meeting for all my addictions. It's called Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. That's all I need. The 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous works for every addiction I got if I'll apply it to my life. But like I said, from 74 to 78, alcohol and drugs just completely took over my life. I didn't go home a lot. I would roam the streets of Louisville and do what I wanted to do. And I want to tell you the point I got, and then I'm going to get into recovery. In 1977, my brother Norman called me up one day, and he, they was working extra work on Saturday and Sunday. They was all painters. And he said, Larry, you want to work this weekend? I said, Lord, yes, I need the money. He said, well, be ready at 530 in the morning. We'll pick you up. We're all going out to the Ford Motor Company in Louisville and work. I said, I'll be ready. And at 5.30 on a Saturday morning, they honked the horn. I went out and climbed in the car, and they had a bag of reefer laying on the front seat and a cooler full of vodka and orange juice. And I looked at them, and they was already wasted, and I thought, this is going to be a good job. And I proceeded to catch up with them, and we got out to the Ford Motor Company and wasn't long till that vodka and orange juice was gone. And I told my nephew, I said, I'm going home. He said, what's the matter, Uncle Larry? And I said, I ain't staying here. We ain't got nothing to drink. He said, well, you can't get out of here. And I said, well, there's got to be a way. And I looked, and they rode on little golf carts out there. And I walked over to one of these golf carts and pushed the starter button, and it started, and I whistled for my nephew. We drove it up to the gatehouse and parked it and told this guard we had to go after some paint. And he let us out, and we went to a liquor store. And we stayed in there a good while and got bottles of whiskey. I had at least five brothers working on this job. And I told my nephew, I said, we better get back. I know Norman's raging in that plane. He ain't got nothing to drink. And we did. We got in the car and went back, and as we went through the gatehouse, my nephew had a bottle of whiskey sticking out of his pocket, and the guard grabbed it, and we got kind of belligerent with him. He said, I don't know what to do with you guys. I'm going to call the captain. And when he went to use the phone, we snatched up that whiskey, and we run out and jumped on that golf cart we had left. And away we went, and my nephew said, Uncle Larry, you better open this thing up. They're coming after us. And I looked back, and there was two guards on a golf cart, and they was chasing us. And I said, man, I got this thing as fast as it'll go. And he said, well, you better do something or we're going to get caught. And we rounded this corner, and I looked over by this building, and they was the shiniest fire engine I ever seen in my life. Now, I've never drove one before, and I've never drove one since. But I was drunk enough that day to try and drive that one. And we pulled over to that fire truck, and we jumped on it, and the keys was dangling in it. And I started up, and I don't know about any of y'all, but you can't drive a fire truck till you get the siren and the light going. <laughs> And us two drunks figured out how to get that siren, that light a-going, and away we went down through that Ford Motor Company. And I remember my nephew looking back at them guards waving. <laughs> we thought we was the slickest things in the world. Now, I told you all real early in my life I liked a lot of attention, and I thought, you know, it would be a shame to steal this fire truck and not let my brother see it. I knew, they want, I knew my brother Norman wanted to see this shiny fire truck. So I told my nephew, I said, hang on, we're going to take this back in this building. And... We was working way back in the back of one of these buildings. And we had an aisleway that was just big enough to get this fire truck down through. 
And I remember going down through there that day with that siren and that light, and people was a-diving to get out of our way. And I can hear my nephew hollering, run over them SPs, Uncle Larry, kill them. Had you stopped that fire engine that very moment and said one of you guys was going to the penitentiary, I'd have shrugged my shoulders and said, so what? By the grace of a loving God, I've been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for the last 16 and a half years, and that nephew served 14 years in the penitentiary. God works in strange ways. But I want you to know we took that fire engine to where all my brothers was, and they was real impressed. Their eyes got big and their mouth fell open. And I want you to know that every guard at the Ford Motor Company was impressed, too, because they all showed up there. And we got to arguing with them, and one of these guards kind of shoved me. Well, I told you all my brother Norman did my battling, and when this guard shoved me, my brother Norman hit him upside the head, and we had the biggest free-for-all you ever seen out there. Now, I used to tell this story before I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, and it went something like this, that we whipped every guard at the Ford Motor Company. But when I come to you people, you told me about a word I didn't know about. It was called honesty. Now, I'm going to tell you what really happened that night. We got the shit beat out of it. Yeah. And I was a littlest, and I got the worst. And you know, they didn't lock us up that night. They threw me and my brother Norman and my nephew Donnie out of the Ford Motor Company. And we stood outside bobbing, and we said, we'll be back. We're going home and get our pistols, and we'll come back and show you who's the baddest. But we got detained along the way. We run into a beer joint. Now, that was a pretty good Saturday even for me. But I, I didn't have enough. I wound up going home and getting a car that night and wrecking it doing 90 miles an hour. I hit five trees, flipped that car over five times. And as a result of that wreck, I had broken ribs. I had to fight. I had a big hinky on the side of my head as big as a watermelon. I was all beat up and scarred. And on a Monday morning in 1977, I went to work to my regular job, and I went to the paint shop. Now, everybody that drank and drug hung in the paint shop. We used to set chairs up where we could watch the whole plank so nobody could slip up on us. And we would get there at 7 o'clock in the morning, we'd roll up them funny little cigarettes, and we'd smoke them, and then we'd have fun. We'd sit in them chairs and go, you know, you do that for two or three hours, man, you're having a ball. But this morning the phone rang, and it was the personnel director at my job. And he was a good friend of mine. He had his own private airplane, and he used to take me flying a lot. I never did tell him I was hiring his airplane, never dared to get. <laughs> but he called me that morning. He said, Larry, I want to see you over my office. And I told all my buddies, I said, Bill wants to see me. And they said, I wonder what he wants. And I said, I don't know. And I told you what kind of physical shape I was in. I probably weigh 100 pounds again. I ain't eating. You know, it's hard to get fat on pickled weenies and pig's feet. And, uh... I went into his office and he was looking out a window. And he turned around and looked at me and his mouth fell open and his eyes got big and he said, my awful. And I thought, man, if you had the kind of weekend I had, you wouldn't look too hot either. But I didn't tell him about it. But to my knowledge, he was the first person to confront me and call me an alcoholic. He looked at me that morning and he said, Larry, you know what's wrong with you? I said, no, Bill, what's that? He said, you're an alcoholic and I know a place that can help people like you. And boy, I turned around and busted out of his office. I was madder than hell. And I went over to the paint shop, and all my buddies was over there. They said, what did Bill want with you? And I said, y'all will never believe what he told me. They said, what's that? And I said, he said, I'm an alcoholic. They said, oh, man, he tells everybody that. Come on, have a beer. <laughs> y'all know who I believe, don't you? I just wasn't ready yet. But I left his office, and I continued to drink for another year. 
And I don't know where you got in your alcoholism, but I want you to know that I took my wife and my three kids, my mom and dad, my brothers and sisters, and anybody that cared anything about me, and I jerked them straight into the jaws of hell. We lived. A year after I left that personnel director's office, I'd been out with my brother Norman, and we'd been on about a three or four day drunk, and we wound up at my house at four o'clock in the morning. And as a result of that drunk, I overdosed on alcohol and drugs. And when I come to, I was in that university hospital where my brother used to wind up in them straitjackets. And I was laying on a gurney, and I had a tube in every hole I had. And I was strapped down on my legs and across my waist and my hands. And I'm laying on that gurney, and I'm so sick. And a woman walked up to me, and I found out she was a psychiatrist. And she said, Larry, we're going to put you upstairs before you hurt yourself or somebody. And I'm laying on that gurney, and I thought, this old gal's going to lock my ass up. And I began to con and manipulate like I had done all my life. And I looked up at her, and I said, look, lady, if you'll let me out of this hospital, I'm going to do something about my thing. And she said, do you really mean that, Larry? And I'm laying on a gurney strapped down, but I could get that swirling hand up. And I looked up at her, and I said, I swear to God, if you let me out of here, I'm going to do something about my drinking. And you know, she bought my story, and I got out of that hospital, and I did do something about my drink. I stopped on the way home and got a six-pack. And I want to tell you tonight, it's not how many jails you've been in, or penitentiaries, or car wrecks, or fights, because they're not a requirement for the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, thank God. And that's not what got me here. I think what got me here is what gets every alcoholic, and it's called feeling. It's knowing that every day is going to be just like the day before. It's the hopelessness and helplessness and despair that's your constant companion. It's waking up in the morning and putting your feet over on the side of the bed and putting your head in your hands and crying because you knew that you had to lie and cheat and steal to the very people that you love the most. It's alcoholism. That's what we do to you. And that's where I was when I got out of that hospital. And on a Monday morning on November the 7th of 1978, I went in to go, fully intentions of going over to that paint shop with my buddy. And I walked by that personnel director's office and I sat down on the steps. And I remember thinking, I can't do this one more day. And I sat on them steps till he come in. And I said, Bill, you told me about a place that could help people like me. I said, where is it? He said, LaGrange? Well, that was where that penitentiary was. I said, no, I don't want to go there. <laughs> and he told me about a treatment center. And him and my wife took me to a treatment center on November the 7th of 1978. Had I known what was in store for me in that treatment center, I'd have jumped out of that car on Interstate 71, I'd have run like hell. I'm so grateful to loving God I know today don't let me see in the future because I'd have missed this wonderful fellowship and the great life. They detoxed me in that treatment center and they come up to me one day and they said, Larry, you got to go to group counseling. And I said, what's group counseling? They said, you're about to find out. He said, you see that woman over there? And I said, yes. Yeah. said, she's going to be your counselor. She's meaner than a rattlesnake. I said, so what? I'm a big, tough guy from Portland. I can handle her. And I went into group therapy in the first week. Every time I opened my mouth, this woman only said, look at me and say, bullshit, little boy. <laughs> I hated her guts. I used to lay in my room and plot her murder. But I got to feeling better, and you know, that's the worst thing can happen to an alcoholic in treatment. He gets feeling better, and he knows everything. 
And I'm sitting in group therapy one day, and I'm running off at the mouth, and there was an older fellow in group, and he looked at me, and he said, you make me sick. And I looked over at him, he said, you know what you are, Larry? And I said, what's that? And he said, you're a big phony. Right. Because when I was 12 years old on them street corners, I put a false face on. I was whatever the crowd wanted me to be. I was never able to let you see what I was like inside because I knew you would reject me. And it scared me to death when he told me that. And I jumped up and I run out of that group therapy and I went to my room. And I was 38 years old. And I remember walking in my room and I thought, What's it'll never be me. And I laid down on my bed in that treatment center. And my bed was a-shaking and my room was a-shaking and I was a-shaking. And why I uttered a prayer this day in that treatment center, I'll never know. Because I hadn't said a prayer since I was a small child and my mother taught me how to sleep. I had left God so far behind that I got it. But I laid on that bed and I looked up. And I said, God, if you're there, please. Me. And I believe the loving God I know today reached down and he touched me in that treatment center. And he gave me the most precious gift that it's possible for a guy like me to have. In it. And he gave it to me because he loved me. And I'm grateful for God's love and his mercy that I could find this fellowship. I went back into group therapy the next day and something was different in my life. I don't know what, but for the first time in my life, I tried to take my false face off. And we used to play a lot of silly little games in that treatment center. And I remember one night being in there and my counselor said, Larry, we're going to pretend we're in a cemetery and you're looking at your own tombstone. And you can write whatever you want to on it. What would you write on yours? And I thought for a minute and I said, I don't know, I'd probably write gone but not forgotten. She said, why in the world would you write that on your tombstone? I said, lady, if you've left it and as much chaos behind you as I have, I'd like to think that when I pass from this earth, I could leave something decent that somebody would remember me. And she said, you can. And I said, how? I'm 38 years old. I have messed up my whole life. She said, it's through a program called Alcoholics Anonymous. She said, with it, there's a new beginning. Without it, you're a I left that treatment center after 30 days, and I'm going to tell you how sick I was. I went home to my wife and three teenage children, and I thought we was going to be the Beaver family. God, it was awful. I set my family down at the table after I got home, and I said, things are going to be different. And my youngest daughter rolled her eyes. And it teed me off, and I went to a meeting that night, and the guy that was to become my sponsor, my first sponsor, Dave, I said, Dave, my family don't believe me. And he laughed. He said, hell, I don't believe you either. He said, oh, we got to go on your track record. He said, how many times you told your family you wasn't going to drink? And I said, about a million. And he told me something that night I hope I never forget. He said, the greatest talk that you walk. He said, walk in front of the people that love you and let them see the change in you. Now, I'd like to tell you that that was instant at our house, but it was crazy. I had three teenagers that hadn't, I hadn't been in their life at all. And I began to try and give them curfews and tell them what they couldn't do and they couldn't do. And I want to tell you what, if you'd have stopped by my house, you'd have thought we was all drunk. <laughs> it was awful. I used to hold court at the kitchen table while they was trying to eat dinner, and they wouldn't listen to me, and I'd have to pound on the table. And then I'd throw temper fits. Any of you guys ever threw temper fits? I don't like telling this, but my sponsor says it's good for me. 
I ain't too sure about that, but I'm going to tell it anyhow. I used to throw these temper fits, and I'd jump up and down and beat on the countertops. And a guy in AA told me, he said, Larry, you know what's wrong with you? And I said, what? And he said, you got a little brat inside of you, and his name's Buster. And he said, Buster's running your life. You need to spank his ass and put him to bed. <laughs> Old Buster was running my life. My son started falling in the back door drunk, loaded on grass, and I thought, how can he do this to me? <laughs> as good of a dad as I've been to this kid. But I had enough ego, I thought, well, I'll straighten him out with all my vast experience. If anybody in here is trying to straighten out your kid, lots of luck. <laughs> when I tell you a little bit more about David later, you'll give up. But uh, it was awful. My son finally joined the Navy to get away from home. My two daughters moved to Texas to be with my sister. And that left me and Barbara. Now, I knew how to keep Barbara straight. Man, I held my sobriety like a club right over her head. If she didn't do just what I wanted her to, I'd look at her and I'd say, I'll get drunk. Boy, she'd snap too. But she was going to Al-Anon. And my life was about to change. <laughs> Big time. I remember one night she wasn't doing something I wanted her to do, and I said, I'll get drunk. Boy, she wheeled around and looked me dead in the eye, and she said, who gives shit? <laughs> yeah. She said, your sobriety is your responsibility, not mine. She's hearing something in them rooms. You know, she had a mean old sponsor. I didn't like her sponsor at all. They come out of a room one night, and I said, I guess y'all been back there talking about me, and her sponsor said... Why, you skinny little shrimp, what makes you think we'd waste an hour on you? <laughs> well, I was catching it from all sides. I want to tell you what, the only thing that I can tell you that I done right is I went to an AA meeting every night. It saved my life. I went to AA meetings and thank God for the people that stood out in parking lots and listened to all this garbage that I had inside of me, sometimes till 12 o'clock at night. And you know, me and Barbara used to sit at a table we used to just stare at each other. We didn't know how to communicate. All we ever talked about is what I'd done the night before. And now I'm going to AA meetings, so we didn't know how to communicate. Thank God for the couples in Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon that began to grab a hold of us. Barbara had a mean old sponsor, and I hated her husband worse. He was a crude old guy, used a lot of four-letter words that guys like me could understand, and he was always wanting us to go someplace. And I didn't like going with all them AAs and Al-Anons, and I'd tell Barbara, I'd say, if they call, tell them we ain't going. And Louie would call, and Barbara would hand me the phone, I'd say, what time are you going to pick us up? <laughs> I was scared of Louie. And we began to go places with other couples, and we began to learn how to be a couple. And I remember that we went with 50 couples, and we went to a play. Can you imagine a guy like me going to a play? I went to a play called Camelot. And I sat in that play, and I was totally captivated by that. And it had an intermission. And I walked out to smoke a cigarette, and one of them big old tough guys from Portland was out there. He said, Larry, I didn't know you liked this kind of stuff. I said, hell, I didn't either. <laughs> it's only been through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I have been able to experience things I never knew this. And we began to go to a lot of AA functions. We began to go to, to conferences, and we began to to go to a lot of different things and we begin to meet people and they showed us how to be a couple again. And it's been an ongoing process for me and Barbara to learn how to have a loving relationship and we have the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm the kind of husband 
today that I always wanted to be. And I love my wife today, and I tell her that. And we're happy that we get to go places together. And it's only been through the 12 steps and this fellowship and a loving God. My children all moved away, and I used to whine to my sponsor. I said, man, I wish my kids had come back. He'd say, be careful what you pray for. <laughs> and my children began to come home, and they didn't come home all at once. God knew that we'd kill each other. And he brought my children back one at a time. And I began to try and have relationships with my kids. And my youngest daughter was my first one to come home. Sherry come home, and uh, she began to live with me and her mother. She got a job at a bank, and we began to have some good times, and we began to go with her. And I began to try and be the kind of father that you all told me I did. And me and her had some good times. I remember after she was home, she had a job in a bank. And she come home all excited one day, and she said, Dad, Mom, I got some tickets to the ballet, and I like to dad. I said, the ballet? And she said, yeah, I want you to go with me. And I put on a big nice suit and a tie, and me and her mother, we got all dressed up, and we went down to the Center for the Arts there in Louisville, a great big fancy building, and she had seats right in the middle, about three rows back. And she sat right in the middle of us, and she was so proud to be with us. And They got ready to start this ballet, and a woman walked out on the stage, and she made a fatal mistake. She said, hi, my name's Kathy, and I hollered, hi, Kathy. <laughs> I was the only one in that auditorium that hollered, hi, Kathy. <laughs> My daughter tried, tried to crawl under the seat. She said, she said, Dad, AA has run you. You can't take you nowhere. And we've had some good times. And we've had some bad times. I've watched my daughter go through a lot of pain. She's 32 years old, and she's back home with me again. She's going through a divorce. Well, she's through a divorce. And she's living with me. And it's been tough, man. I'm going to tell you, when them old ones come back, it's been rough. You know, and we've had our ups and our downs. And she's getting married again. She didn't waste no time, you know. Uh, she's been to some meetings. She might belong here, them quick decisions. But uh, she's getting married. And, you know, we get along pretty good. We've had our ups and downs. But I know today that I love her and she loves me. My oldest daughter stayed in Texas. She got married down there. And she had two kids down there. And I used to whine to my sponsor, and I'd say, man, I would have. He said, be careful what you pray for. They not only moved closer to Louisville, her and her husband busted up, and they moved in my house <laughs> with a four-year-old and a six-year-old. And when I tell you what, I had the time of my life. She, uh, I'm retired by now on disability. My wife's working part-time. My daughter went to work. And guess who babysitted them two kids? Grandpa. Now, I used to take a six-year-old to school, and I'd drop him off, and me and a four-year-old spent the day together. And I told my sponsor, Jack, I said, me and that kid got along good. He said, you are too. You're all the same age. <laughs> <laughs> well, we used to get everybody off to work and get that, his brother to school, and me and him would head to the video store, and we'd get a kid's video, one of them funny videos, and we'd bring it back to the house, and I'd fix that little fellow a snack. And in my bedroom, I got a great big king-size bed with a bunch of pillows. And me and him get up on that king-size bed, and he'd get right here in the crook of his grandma. And he'd eat that snack, and he'd watch him cartoons, and every once in a while, okay, him and his brother has never taken a drink. They've never seen their grandfather chase their... They lived with me for a while. My oldest daughter and her husband got back together, and they moved back to Texas. And everybody said, you're going to cry. I said, just till they get out of the driveway... I found out I can love them in Texas, and I go see them once a year, and they come home for Christmas, and they know how to dial the telephone, and we've got a wonderful relationship today. 
I talked to my daughter sometimes an hour on the phone. But I walked my talk in front of age that I could be a loving father and I could support her, love her for what she is and who she is. My son David has been the hardest story for me to tell. When I left Louisville, Kentucky to come here, David's somewhere out on the streets. He uh, just got out of the penitentiary after doing five months. He had some time and he got into some more trouble and he had to go back. And he asked me if he could come home and I knew that it would never work. I have been a revolving door for my son. And one more time I let David come home and he began to go to meetings and he began to work and me and him began to fish. And we had two of the most that I can ever remember. We had some good times. But I knew it wasn't going to last because I seen David do some things that was familiar to me. He began to stockpile that money. He said, I got a thousand dollars. I thought, boy, spend it. You know, and it wasn't long till David left one night. And since. Well, he's been back, but I've had And David somewhere out on the streets drank fellowship. And it breaks my heart because I love David. But I know I'm killing David. And I can't continue to do it. And I'm going to have to let go of my son. I've tried so many times. And it's the hardest thing. I know that I can't help my son. I have to leave him to you. I can help your son. Oh. And I pray for David. And me and Barbara come here this weekend with a real heavy heart. So we don't know what's going to happen. And it's hard to turn your child out on the streets. But I pray to God that you don't pain. And there's a lot of trust in God, and that's what we have to do. I know that God loved me enough to gutter and bring me to this wonderful fellowship. And I know that he loves my son enough care of him. And I asked your prayers. And my prayers will be with your son. Maybe someday David can take a place in Alcoholics Anonymous and find a great life. And if I could give a gift that gift, I can only share my gift with you and let you see how much David because I know that when God removes me, that if my son knows you people attending meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous and the laughter and the warmth that I have found in alcohol. And I believe that if God gives you a gift and you open that gift up and you say, my, isn't that nice? And you put it away in the closet, you don't really enjoy. But I believe that if you open a gift up, sobriety is the more I'm able to share it, the more precious it becomes. I want to tell you about a few more people in my life and then I'm going to be quiet. It's an early bird, so I guess I'll just talk till I'm through. My brother Norman, I told you about, I was sober in his fellowship and I'd got a token and I was working with my brother Norman and he was smoking reefer and he used to blow that reefer in my face and I used to take that AA token and I'd shake it at him. And I said, Norman, I got something more powerful in that grass. And he said, man, them AAs has brainwashed you. Well, I was sober about two years, and my brother called me up. He said, will you take me to that treatment center? And I said, how come? He said, if they can help you, they can help me. And I took my brother to that treatment center. And I want you to know we had the best time in the world. We began, him and his wife, and me and Barbara, we began to go everywhere. We began to go to conventions and conferences and roundups and meetings and potluck dinners, and we just had a wonderful time. Now, my brother Norman was a tough guy when he got here. He didn't hold hands. He wouldn't let nobody hold his hand. He wouldn't even let a woman hug him. You know he was sick. <laughs> Much less a man. But I want to tell you what happened to my brother. 
he stayed around his fellowship to the most powerful force in the world touched his life. And it's a four-letter word. It's called L-O-V-E, love. And my brother felt your love. And he began to try and work the 12 step do. And my brother was three years sober in this program, and he called me up one day, and he said, man. I said, what's the matter, brother? And he said, I went to the doctor today. I said, how bad? He said, I don't know, but I want you to go with me. And we went back to the doctor, and my brother had terminal cancer. And they only gave him three months to live. And we walked out of that doctor's office, and he said, I just want you to do one thing for me, for nobody. I was a taker, not a giver. And I promised my brother that I And the next three months that my brother lived, he said, and I used to go up to the hospital at nighttime, and I would stay with brother. And everybody would leave. And I'd say, Norm, what do you want to do tonight? He'd say, why don't you? And I remember one night he was laying in that bed, and I looked over at him. He was grinning. I said, what do you mean? He said, they laugh when they're supposed to cry, and they cry when they're supposed to laugh. And sometimes at 2 o'clock in the morning, I would look at my brother, and he would be suffering. I'd have to give him some medicine. And I was with my brother. He lived and it devastated me after my And I want you to know that God will give you me some of the most craziest pigeons in the world. <laughs> most of them was just like my brother. I know Scott's here, and he's met some of them. He's been, him and Mary's met them, and I sponsor them, and they're a nightmare. But I want you to know that they saved my life because I got involved in their life. I tried to be a sponsor, and I tried to help them work the steps and begin to work this program. Under, and I know that God sent them. My dad, I told you about that I hated so bad. I was two years sober in this program, and my sponsor called me up. And he said, "You want to go to a meeting tonight?" I said, "I can't." He said, "What's the matter?" And I said, "I gotta go to the hospital and see my old man." He said, "Larry, don't you want to go?" And I said, "Not particularly." He said, "What's the matter?" And I said, "I don't particularly care for my daddy." I said, "In fact, I probably hate his guts." I said, "He made my life miserable when I was a kid." He said, you're the biggest hypocrite i ever seen in my life. He said, how can you want your children to forgive you and you can't forgive your daddy? He said, how in the world can you say the Lord's Prayer in an AA meeting and ask God to forgive you your trespasses? He said, boy, you need to think about it. My dad was in his 80s. And I walked into the hospital room and I looked at my daddy. My daddy, yeah, I hated the things he did. And I pulled a chair up and I looked at my dad, and for the first time I can remember, I was 40 years old, two years sober in this program. And I looked at my dad, and I said, Dad, I love you. My dad got well. and Me and him become best of friends. My dad lived to be 93 years old. They say that's a red. And he was one of my best friends when he passed away. I never went to see my dad after that, but I didn't rub his white hair and hug him and kiss him on possible. I tell you that story because there may be somebody in here, my dad. My mom's still alive. She lives about 10 minutes away from me. My mom's 90. That's heredity. I'm from good stock. My mom lives about 10 minutes away from me, and she lives in an apartment by herself. She's able to take care of And me and all my brothers kind of take turns taking care of mom. Now, my oldest brother used to take her to the grocery store, and he would rather you took a hot pot. He hates to take mom to the store. So I told him, I said, well, you take care of something else, and I'll take my mom to the store. And I go about once a week, and I take my mom to the grocery store. Now, that's an hour and a half venture. Because <laughs> she goes up and down every aisle. She picks it up, and she looks at it. She sets it back there. But she likes going to the store with me, because I let her take as long as she wants. 
I just let her push that cart and do whatever she wants to. And you know why I do that? Not because I'm such a great. I go, I used to, I don't have to anymore because somebody else does it. But I used to go over once a week and I'd get my home. And I didn't ask my wife, Barbara, to clean it. I would take it and put it in the washer and wash it. And I would dry it and I would fold it. And I'd Not because I'm such a good mother to tell her I love her. And I've got a good relationship. Dinner, she thinks Barbara's the best cook in the world. And I agree with her. But I'm so grateful. And me and Barbara are so grateful that we've got you here. And you know, if a guy like me can find a God of his understanding, and God can pick him up out of gutter and bring him to you people. And if you haven't felt the magic of the love in Alcoholics Anonymous, all I can is stick around. Don't leave till you feel it. Because if you feel it, your life will never be the same. The magic in Alcoholics Anonymous will touch you and your life will never be the same, but it stay here. When I walked out of a treatment center, if you had asked me what my greatest fear was, I'd have said, man, what am I going to tell my friends? And I believe that God gives you what you need. And God give me a poem. And I, but I want to thank the committee for having kicked this thing off. You know, I'm done now, man. You other speakers can paddle the boat. <laughs> I'm done, and I'm going to kick back and really enjoy myself. But I do want to thank everyone that invited us down and for your lovely hospitality. And I want to close with this poem, what to tell somebody maybe if you're having a bad day to have a drink. And I got this shortly after I... It said, I dreamed one night I passed away. And I started down that lonely trail. I came to a signboard on the trail, the directions it did to keep right to heaven. I hadn't been too good on earth, just a hike. I started down the rocky path that leads to Satan's place. Oh, Satan met me at the gate. What's your name, my friend? I'm just old sober sand that's come to a bad end. He glanced through the yellow files. You made a mistake here. You're listed as an alcoholic. We don't want you here. I said, I'm looking for my friends. If your friends are alcoholics. So I went back the way I came to the cross. St. Pete smiled and said, come in. You are an alcoholic. I saw old bud Pete Bill and a friend called Bell. And brother, I was tickled. Cause I so brothers, I'll take warning. Learn something from my trip. You've got a place in heaven if you try hard not to slip. If someone tempts you with a drink when you're not feeling well, just tell them you're going to heaven. Y'all, God bless you.